This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy, your Sunday morning hour of chit-chat with the doctors. And it's Dad's Day. So as a tribute to all you dad types out there, we are going to be saluting you all, talking dad jokes, talking men's health, talking all things buy of the footy. So that's given us all time to kind of reconnect with our families and do something other than football. We're going to be talking all sorts of things today. Oh, good morning, and it is uh, springtime in Melbourne. The sun is out, which is delightful, and we are very happy to be in the radiotherapy studio today. Let me introduce who is joining me. I have renowned child and adolescent psychiatrist Malice, super duper ED doc Lolly Doc, the panel beater bringing his words of wisdom that make us all feel safe, and myself, Miss Medic. GP and only female in the studio. Bring in the female vibe somewhat. So I, I think I'm in touch with my feminine side. <laughs> oh, I can only see where this is going It's, going, it's actually going nowhere. I've, I've, I've got a fear of, um, of elevators, but I'm taking steps to avoid it. Oh, oh, so first dad, dad joke mom, of the day. Dad, dad joke. jokes are in the house. I knew it was not going to be an issue for you to bring dad jokes, Lolly Doc. I Thanks. Thought, you know, you are, you are a walking, talking dad joke, right? <laughs> That's what my kids say. <laughs> Shall we that get them into house? <laughs> we should. My, my son actually asked me this morning how many Father's Day I've had and I said, buddy, like, maybe you should work that out. And oh. he couldn't quite work out that you needed children to be a father. Oh, oh. of course. Yeah, well, you probably... Well, do you? That's a good question because there's lots of oh, that's a very fathering good, good point. types out there yes. that not necessarily children uh, have children of their own but are certainly doing some of the fathering that we need in society. Mm. And as we said on Mother's Day, I think it's important to acknowledge those fathers that perhaps are estranged from their families or are doing it tough or haven't been able to see their kids today. I think that's important. Absolutely. For some yeah. people, certainly today will not be an easy day. And if you are one of them, then our thoughts are definitely with you. But I did have that moment today where I was looking at this blank card thinking I've got to write a message to my husband about, you know, Father's Day. And I just thought, look, we've been together for 17 years, birthday cards, <laughs> Christmas cards. I almost wrote, Happy Father's Day, we, we clearly love you, please see previous, previous cards, cards for <laughs> further details. Because I just, yeah, I'm going to have to think of something more Would that go down well? I'm sure he'd be fine with that. In, in fact, he'd probably be relieved and say, if, if this is the new standard that we've set, and he can also duplicate that on any of my special days. I, I was thinking you're going to say you've left it blank. <laughs> it just you fill it in for yeah. what you'd like to project. Yeah, well, that's important too. Self love. <laughs> so Choose it's been a buy this week, Melis, but you are still in your. Brown and gold? Yes, dear brown listeners, and gold? The, the buy, I think, is referring to the football game. 
that this weekend is a buy because of the uh, arrangements that there's a, a bit of a rest for all the hard-working uh, teams before the final grand final series. And the reason I'm in brown and gold this morning, uh, literally dressed up as such, is because uh, unexpectedly the team that I follow, Hawthorne, uh, is actually in the top four against all odds. And for his troubles, Alastair Clarkson, who's the coach, has been talked about as being nominated as the best coach for the year. Now, you may wonder why. And there's a really deep-seated reason for this, is that many teams go through team building. After their championships and they win silver and whatnot, uh, their players just... We all age, and they have to be moved on. And with Hawthorne, some of the key players for the last decade have actually been moved on. And so it's a phase of team building. Now, It doesn't really work for the radiotherapy team, though. Some some of us should have been moved on long ago. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I refresh each year in the new colours. And so basically the idea here is that when a team is rebuilding, then it's expected for three or four years till the new blood is sort of worn in, the teamwork, the, the, the system gets going. They're in the bottom part of the eight if they're in the eight at all, and that's reasonable. You know, no one bats an eyelid. And here Hawthorne within two years is in the top four totally unexpectedly. So we're not really necessarily expecting much progress, but just to acknowledge that turning up each week, and as we do here at Radiotherapy each week and each month and each year, there's something of a credit just to turning up. This is true. I, I think our listeners may beg to differ. But <laughs> yeah. They want a little bit more from us. Can I say thank you to the, the Radio Marinara team for their... Uh, pearl of parenting wisdom. So they've given me another uh, warning for the kids. They were talking about leopard seals and they were talking about how uh, a leopard seal would probably uh, take a small child, like they're quite aggressive seals. So it's fantastic. I said to my kids, now I've got something else to warn you about. If you don't do this, I'm going to throw you to a leopard seal. It's fantastic. (laughs) Well, just to foreshadow, I'll give you a much better line than that in in the segment on crocodiles. Cannot wait. Panel Vita, how are you? Fresh from a radiothon? Wasn't that a blast? It was a blast, Jeez. as always. As always. As always. It went blindingly quickly. Fantastic. All right, who's got some medical ketchup for us? Melissa, you've been scouring the newspapers. Lolly Doc, you wanted to talk about something that affects a certain proportion of men. I do. So I thought it would be appropriate on Father's Day kind of appropriate (laughs) to talk about erectile dysfunction. Why not? And in fact, it is the one year anniversary or pretty close to the one year anniversary of the Cialis Pills daily um, pill. Yeah. Uh, So I might explain that for the listeners. I'm glad that sentence ended that way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, There are various, uh, I might start with erectile dysfunction. So erectile dysfunction is the inability to maintain an erection uh, during intercourse or during um, sex or... Uh, an inability to, to get one in the first place. Yeah. Um, and it's important if that does happen to you that you do seek a medical consultation because there are some reasonably serious medical conditions that can predispose to that. For example, diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, it also is a consequence sometimes of medications that we take, um, in particular antidepressants. Um, many people experience erectile dysfunction when they're on antidepressants. Uh, so in... Um, fantastic uh, science stories, people found that uh, a medication that was used to treat some cardiovascular conditions early in the 70s 
um, also had the side effect of uh, producing quite firm rigid, fantastic erections. And so they thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we could, like, market this? So they did. Um, so Viagra was the first one of that. So Sildenafil is the, the generic name for that. Um, and unfortunately, the problem with Sildenafil is that you have to take a reasonably large dose to get an effect, and it only lasts for about four hours. Mm. Um, and the aim of these medications is not to actually cause a permanent erection, because that can cause problems, but it could... It, it, uh, gives you the ability to have an erection when you want one. Um, but you can only have it for, four, for up to four hours after you take the pill. So that was a bit of a problem because people thought, well, that's missing a bit of spontaneity. Hang on a sec, darling, I've just got to take this pill. We'll be ready in half an hour and I've got four hours for you. <laughs> um, so let's not take any phone calls in that time. We'll have a life. So then they started marketing pills that uh, lasted a bit longer and Cialis was the next one, Tadanafil, uh, which um, lasts about 36 hours after you, you take the pill. The problem, though, is you need large doses for that. Um, and with large doses come side effects. And the main side effect is headache, flushing, indigestion. That's what people experience, particularly headache. Um, and there's a risk of having, um, and you'll like this, uh, loss of eyesight, loss of hearing. <laughs> I know. I Go on. Loss of eyesight was... Yes, yep. <laughs> I know. Um, and the and, and it is um, possible to have an erection that doesn't go down, which can be a medical emergency. Priapism. Priapism, indeed. So um, the clever people in the pharmaceutical industries decide, why don't we make a low-dose pill that you take every day? And then you take it every day too. And, and so the pharmaceutical industries love that. Isn't that clever? Mm. Yeah. So that's what they did. And in fact, the evidence for the last year does show that the side effects are less on this low-dose pill. But as you say, you do have to take a pill every day. Um, it does, I guess, give you that option of spontaneity that um, when you do want to have sex, that that can happen when you want it to happen, as opposed to, hang on a sec, let me pop the, the pill. Um, but you, as you say, you do have to take it every day and that comes with the potential for the side effects too. So yeah. I thought it'd be interesting just to raise that topic today. Um, if that is an issue for people out there to seek medical advice and have Absolutely. a chat with your GP. It's not an easy conversation to have. It's not an easy conversation to have. Um, but I would say that there are some questionable sort of other industries that you might hear advertised on other radio stations, not this one, um, that will talk about not very well-proven techniques. And and I think that um, if you do fall into that category, and look, this is really common. In general practice, I see this fairly frequently. And to a certain extent, it will affect most men to, uh, as they age. So it's, you know, I want to kind of normalise this. Um, speak to your GP because there are certainly, like you said, some proven um beneficial sort of medications but they're not without side effects and you would you should really be assessed by a gp before you take any of these medications online um is a rip-roaring trade for these types of medications they're sold as as um non-prescription viagra um and i'd warn people uh, not to buy those um they're not regulated you don't know what you're getting in the product and they're often high dose sildenafil um, or Viagra with a whole lot of other stuff in it that can be quite dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Just in the last 10 years, there's been, or even longer in men's health movement, the idea of the male menopause and the idea of testosterone, obviously the male hormone declining. So in what sort of, how does a GP or a specialist think about a patient coming in, whether they need something specific for erectile dysfunction versus this is one of the 
features of a more general menopausal, male menopausal symptom, which may need a totally different approach, of which this is one of the many symptoms. How does that work? I think... Often if there is a true testosterone deficiency, there are other symptoms other than just erectile dysfunction. Um, So I often, if I have any suspicion that there might be true testosterone deficiency going on, then I arrange blood tests for that. And typically we need to check morning testosterone levels and separate and to have a a couple of measurements showing a true low testosterone level early morning over a number of weeks. Um, And then, yes, the management is different when we talk about actual testosterone replacement, which might be in the form of a gel or a patch um, or injections. And these do work well. But typically men who are experiencing that will have some other really marked symptoms such as, um, you know, significant fatigue, um, and it, as it's opposed to erectile dysfunction, in erectile dysfunction, there's the the libido, like the will and the want for sex is there, but they just aren't able to maintain the erection. In testosterone dysfunction, there's a real lack of libido, lack of interest in sex. So it's one, interesting one that um, erections per se, so the flow of blood um, into the piece is actually maintained predominantly by oestrogen rather than testosterone. So vascular tone... Um, or the tone of the arteries and vessels um, is predominantly oestrogen-related rather than testosterone. So Mm. that kind of throws a bit of a spanner Mm. in the menopause works, really. Yeah. On the pharmaceutical side of it, it also occurs to me how quick the response was to the development of medication that dealt with ED rather than the male contraceptive pill. You know, I know that it's not apples and apples to compare the two, but certainly medical science turned its attention to erectile dysfunction with much more alacrity than it has with the male contraception. It's not surprising, really. (laughs) Well, and I think what made me think of it was talking about taking a pill every day because one of the... Yeah. One of the public concerns of um, of the male contraception is uh, contraception is can you rely on men to be um, able to take a pill every day? Maybe we need to just come combined. up with a combined. It's combined. Pill, I was going is, there too. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to start a pharmaceutical company? I think company? so. This maybe this is uh, our new direction. Do you get it? Hey. Is <laughs> <laughs> the company name three triple R? Welcome back to Radiotherapy. You're with myself, Miss Medic, Lolly Doc, Mellis and Panel Beta. Now, Mellis, you have been up in Darwin getting comfy with the reptiles and you've got lots that you've learnt that you'd like to share with us all. Well, yes. Um, firstly, I'm, I'm grateful to be back because up in the north, it's called the Top End for those who don't know the capital of the Northern Territory being Darwin, named after the man, Darwin. So now there's two ways to come back from there, as a Darwinian or as a Darwinian. And I've come back as both. That is a whole new respect for the fauna and flora up there. First of all, just to mention the setting, the seasons that we know here in Melbourne, more or less four seasons, summer, winter, spring, today's first day of spring or yesterday, and uh, the the... Transition to go up north where there's two primary seasons, the dry and the wet. If you're one of the local Aboriginal uh, country people, then there are up to 10 seasons. 
That is, in the same year, they can actually differentiate by the arrival of insects and flowers and tides and so on, 10 different phases. So it just gives you a sense of the nuance that they have. Well, let's keep it crude for us, the two seasons, wet and dry. Separated from sort of March to September is the dry, when I was up there, to October to the following March is the wet season, marked by something of seven or eight metres of tidal movement. That is, everything that you see in the dry actually is submerged under metres of water. Practical example, jetties and piers are actually floating jetties so that they move up and down with the tide. Amazing spectacle if you've never thought about this. Now, with the culture of the change there in climate and uh, habitat, there is a whole health campaign called uh, 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 crocodile awareness, basically because the place is endemic with salties. They're the the salt crocodiles as opposed to the sweeties who are the sweetwater crocodiles or the freshwater. Now, what I was absolutely riveted by is the... The way that crocodiles have evolved, and I heard from a guide, they are one of the most successful of species over the thousands thousands of years. They have remained intact, whereas others have become extinct. Why? Well, you may say they're armour-plated and they're sort of really well-protected and all they do is just chomp, 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 as alligators and crocodiles do. However... You learn the most amazing things about their makeup. For example, they eat rocks. I've never heard of a crocodile eating rocks. Why do they eat rocks? For ballast. Clearly, they don't digest it, but it stays in their stomach and allows them to expend minimum energy and stay at the bottom of waterways ready for prey. And they are equipped in the most exquisite way with their sensory organs, their eyes, nose and sensory sonars on the top of their nose that is the only visible part of them above the waterline. Their lower jaw, which is pressure sensitive, rests on the, the floor of the waterway to pick up vibes of fish or other animals in distress or actually approaching. So they are like a... a a guided missile, if you like, with sensory radars out all over the place. Now, why does this so interest me is because in our evolution of our psychological and psychiatric knowledge, we have often talked about the mammalian brain as the middle brain, the sort of warm and fuzzy area, and then the cold-blooded reptilian brain. And here, for the first time, I actually saw what an embodied reptilian brain does and heard that they are not nice people. (laughs) For example, if you want to scare your children, in fact, there's some lovely nursery rhymes about don't trust the smiling crocodile, which is both a ditty, a song, and some wonderful lines that we can sing afterwards. In fact, dad joke number two for the day, you can distinguish an alligator from a crocodile by paying attention to whether the animal sees you later or in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, So this is why I was glad to come back from the north top end (laughs) Now one of the amazing facts I learnt Why these fellows are not nice Is they actually turn on their own 
Mm. Now, not only fellow crocodiles, but they go back to the nest and the mother crocodile isn't instinctively protective of the baby crocodiles, but it's actually watching out for father crocodile coming back and eating the baby crocodiles and the mother as well. So they have absolutely no sense of morality or like other animals of kinship and mating and so on. And this is something that is really hard to fathom in the animal kingdom. How does the species preserve itself if it turns on itself? However, they do. Now, one of the questions that I ask myself, why am I so interested in this? And clearly, I'm not a crocodile Dundee type. No, and you don't have rocks in your head, do you? (laughs) Or stomach. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, by the other way, the other phenomenal experience I learned that they have is they've got a mobile liver. That is, they've got a huge liver which acts that as a... That would be ba- so handy on uh, a Saturday I, I've night. I've actually often thought on a Sunday morning, <laughs> would it be good to have a mobile liver? <laughs> yeah, I have had that thought no, too. But why would the crocodile have benefit? Because it also acts as a ballast. If it goes down towards the back end, it helps the crocodile become a projectile out of the water and with their strong tail, it launches at the prey up to its body length, you know, but four, five metres. But they don't have control over where their liver goes. Yes, they do. Oh this is God. why it's called mobile. Yes. This is one of the adaptations. It, it's actually, it makes a bit more evolutionary sense than swallowing rocks because, you know, <laughs> at some stage you do have to eject that ballast and that can't be pleasant. Yeah, that's right. What if you've accidentally had too many rocks? You're like, oh, I've overdone it on the rocks. It, it takes a whole new meaning of when in animal kingdoms we talk about, yes, being on the rocks. And it, anyway... <laughs> Now, why is all this relevant to me and my work as a therapist is because the survival instinct, which is what this is embodied in a crocodile, is something we often talk about in a trauma work, that to to survive trauma, we have to go back to our most primitive basic instincts. And this is where the blood flow and so on, we well know, just goes to the main organs, the heart and the brain and the muscles to get away from danger. The problem, of course, comes after surviving such a threat, we're still, if some of us remain in that state and don't return to our mammalian and higher functions, or, second condition, when future threats become triggers for what's called post-traumatic stress, (coughs) when we revert back to primary survival instinct behaviour. Now, all this is well known, so the question is, how does this apply to our work as therapists and indeed in parenting? Because you may say, well, that's a bit of a long bow. What's that got to do with parents and children? Children actually start off in, if you like, reptilian mode. They are just out for a food and ask, although I know it's Father's Day, but ask any mother who breastfeeds, sometimes those babies actually bite the the nipple that feeds them. And they do not discriminate in terms of, is this mother and mother's body, or am I just really aggro and I'm going to bite down on there? So we have remnants of those parts of our brain from infancy onwards, hopefully most of us evolve out of it in the Darwinian sense and we come back to Melbourne and talk about it. So I assume in terms of therapy you'll be trying to maximise the mammalian brain and minimise those reflexes that you get from the reptilian brain. Absolutely. The question comes though and the lesson here is what I learned from the crocodile experience. 
what happens when with our best intentions, with our mammalian brain, that is empathy, compassion, warmth, wishing to offer reparative moments, we get drawn in. And what happens with a crocodile when it gets its jaws around a prey, it does what is called a death roll. It actually turns around so often that it brings its prey underwater, drowns it, and then shreds it to bit. It, by the way, can't bite because its teeth aren't designed to shred that way. It tears limb from limb. Now, as a So ther- if you're listening, kids, in the studio, <laughs> that's what Daddy's going to do if you do something wrong. <laughs> so there is actually a way out. Crocodile Dundee guy told us, if you ever get into that position, you just stick your hand down the uh, uh, crocodile's oh, throat yeah. and mm-hmm. get to the epiglottis yep. and lift it up because then it will drown. So it will release you the moment sure. you get your hand down there. I'm actually going for the mobile liver. <laughs> I'm going to try and move it the other way. <laughs> I'm going to distract it with tasty stuff. Now, so all of this in the therapy room, what relevance? Tell me how many of us who've actually seen people in survival mode don't get sucked in and we come out, well, figure of speech, no, no pun intended, that we really struggle for our very identity and in emergency clinics where there's real violence of primal people on ice and so on who've lost higher function through no fault of their own, but it's an instinctive neurological baseline. They are just out to survive. You get near them, you are in danger. You have lost your sense of safety. So the first principle that I've learned from this is know who you're facing and don't necessarily trust a smiling crocodile because it's in their nature to snap you in half. They're not mean or immoral. That is their nature. So let us not, with our mammalian framework, judge them morally or ethically. It's our duty, therefore, to know what they're capable of, know how to approach it, and Crocodile Dundee actually had tools and techniques for how you approach crocodiles safely. So as therapists and first-line, front-line workers in all emergency situations where life and death is a major threat, not only to the person we're trying to rescue, but to the rescuer. And so it behoves us to learn that there are techniques that we have to put in place for workplace safety, lest we become the victim inadvertently. I think... um This is all really interesting. And one thing that I sort of take from it is that when you are faced with someone who's in that reptilian mode, there's no point in trying to reach them with your higher order reasoning because it's almost like there's a disconnect happening for them at that point and they're not able to reason at that level. So you almost have to, I don't know, do you wait it out? What do you do in that time in order to model... reconnect with this person once they're no longer in that reptilian mode. Oh, Miss Medic, you have gone to the heart of the matter of a hundred-year debate. This is at the very core that a reptilian-brained person in that state has actually technically dissociated from the higher centres. So their frontal lobe, their decision-making, their default mode network are all subservient to their amygdala survival network. So you ask the the, the the profound question, really. So what do we do? It's all very interesting. 
So first we recognize that we as higher functioning, hopefully, get into those states and it's called dissociative attunement. We actually reflexly want to lash back at the patient. So one of the techniques for safety is to train ourselves and our juniors and indeed ourselves to recognize when we're in dissociative attunement. And that's very interesting for that phase. What's the next phase? And the next phase is called experiential coupling. Because if we're both dissociated, we're just floating around like two crocodiles. Not very good. There's no virtue in being a crocodile therapist. You're hopefully a bit more moral and mammalian brain therapist. So from experiential coupling, you then use body language because they're also uncoupled from their verbal self. We know that the blood flow to broker's area is reduced in stress and crisis, so you can't expect them to talk and listen. So what do we do? We gesture. What does a crocodile do? It opens its jaws and just goes crack, crack, crack as a warning. So you do body language. So, for example, you would hold your hand to your head and go, oh, dear, and gesture the terrible state you're witnessing your patient in. That gets their attention. You're experientially coupling with their reptilian state and beckoning them out by understanding over steps, stepwise, obviously, and sustaining and maintaining your sense of safety is paramount because there is literally no virtue in you dissociating to becoming reptilian yourself. You're just both stuck there. So that is really the heart of the question of all this background. You first recognise your dissociative attunement, the higher centres being disconnected, and secondly, experientially couple at that level to bring you, well, you first you do it yourself and then you bring the patient out with you. This makes so much sense if I think about circumstances when someone who I'm with or one of my children is losing their mind, you know, how unhelpful it is at that point for you to say something like, just calm down. And instead, rather than doing that, it's more like you match them on their level of distress by sort of acknowledging it and giving it validity on that level and then stepwise move them more towards a connected place. Because you're absolutely right. Technically and literally, they have lost their higher mind. Mm. So why talk? It's a waste of breath. Mm. Super interesting. What's the distinction, though, between recognising somebody's losing it, so to speak, um, because of learnt behaviour, that that's when they can get what they want, um, and somebody losing it, because of the um, the condition that you're describing. What a wonderful question. Now, this uh, I, I wasn't prepared for this, but why do we use the expression crocodile tears? Yeah, there we go. That is precisely it, that when a crocodile tear appears, you've got a reserve in your mind saying, this is not truly your distress. You're just having it on to see if I can be manipulated. Now, this is one of the refined moments of the relationship of what led up to it and indeed the pattern because it's only something that a child usually or an adult for that matter learns when they can get away with it. So it behoves the person on whom it's being practised 
to become, as you've just said, Ken, to erase the awareness. Is this genuine? Is this, and in, in psychological terms, we've got Munchausen syndrome, malingering, uh, hysterical conversion, and so on. So there's a whole spectrum where it's, as it were, inauthentic. No less distressing, though. So then the question is, why are they resorting to crocodile tears rather than a high-function communication? Generally, it's because the other person didn't recognise the distress. This is their fallback position. It's not actually manipulation. It's trying to survive a relationship where the original distress was not actually acknowledged. Mm. And that's why the acknowledgement is so important to maintain authentic channels of communication. But it's, it's a big deal from a parent to be on board. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now we're going to go back to talking a little bit more about men's health and we're going to ask the question, do men really look after themselves from a health point of view? Mm, I know, it's an it's a interesting topic and perfect for Father's Day. I do want to make a quick announcement though, like someone's got my Microsoft Office copy and I will find them. Um, you have my word. <laughs> Oh. There's dad oh. joke number three. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Uh, um, who can tell me the top ten causes of premature death in men? Suicide. Dad jokes. Yes, yeah, suicide. Yeah, dad jokes. No, dad jokes is number eleven. <laughs> Sorry, panel leader, you're out on that one. So suicide Suicide's is number ten. Yep. Closely linked to dad Cardiovascular. jokes. Cardiovascular. Cardiovascular disease. Yep. So heart attacks. Yep. Suicide being up there. Suicide's yep. in there. Lung cancer. Dementia, Alzheimer's disease, cerebrovascular disease, um, prostate cancer, colon rectum cancer. Man flu. Man flu, no, number 12, <laughs> and diabetes. So the interesting thing about that list, aside from obviously prostate cancer, is women with equivalent illnesses um, die less commonly than men. So men are more likely to die when diagnosed with those illnesses than, than women are. In fact, men also, as we know, have a lower life expectancy. So in Australia, it's 79. For women, it's 84. Um, There's only three countries that do better than that. So it's not like things are bad in Australia, unless, of course, you're in a high-risk group like our first people um, who have uh, a uh, life expectancy in the 40s, which I think is extraordinary. Anyway. um, Shameful. Shameful. I agree. Um, So... It does beg the question, why is that? Why do men um, have, are more likely to have ill health, more likely to die younger, more likely to suicide? Uh, in fact, for every two women that die, three men die. So I'm just putting it out there and asking the question, why might that be? Almost certainly got something to do with a cultural masculinity. Almost certainly got to do with the fact that they seek help late or mm. don't seek help Which at all. We, we yeah. think we're invulnerable. Well, there we go. So we've got our top three right there. So let's explore those a bit. So, oh, you know, you guys are pretty smart. Um, pretty. Yeah, very well, smart. Not, not pretty one, smart. One is, one is pretty, and the other may be smart. Panel beater. Yeah. Um, so, so we, we, the answer is we actually don't know why um, men are more likely to uh, have ill health, but certainly um, not attending um, medical care is one of them. So they're more likely to attend medical care late uh, when they are sick. They're more likely to not attend regular appointments or seek preventative uh, therapies. Um, and Miss Medic, uh, our wise and expert general practitioner, is nodding her head furiously. 
Um, and so that's certainly part of the equation. How how do we solve that? And and that's something that people have been trying to to put their heads um, together for for a very very long time. Um, one of the one of the uh, Miss, Miss Medic, do you have a a preventative men's health? Um, service in Absolutely, your- we do. And we actively sort of recruit our um, men over the age of 45 to invite them in for a health check. Um, what does that involve? So that involves a full assessment of their risk factors. So we go through their family history, ask them if they're having any sort of symptoms that we need to know of. Um, we go through their weight and height and body mass index, blood pressure, a, a general full exam and uh, cardiovascular in, in particular. We do a urine specimen looking for protein and glucose. And generally we would do some baseline blood tests as well, doing their fasting cholesterol, glucose, um, and we might do a PSA test, which is the prostate test, but it's a bit controversial, but we have a discussion about that. Um, and then if there's other tests like colonoscopies and things like that required, we would arrange those. But it can be really challenging to get men in the door um, and often I see I'm quite opportunistic so if the a man presents for another reason so for a vaccination a travel vaccination or an injury or something like that or presenting with their children then I jump on board and wow. try and get the ball rolling. See, I think that's fantastic and in fact when I reflect on my practice in the emergency department there's very little preventative health mm. Um, particularly related to men's health. And we see a lot of uh, injuries, um, men with injuries. And I think that's really a useful kind of tip. Paddle beat up policy in Australia. Um, How many ads do you think we've seen on men's health on television? How many, what percentage of health budget gets spent on men's health versus women's health? Oh, I'm sure it's minuscule, and that would be the same with fundraising as well on yeah. any of the male. So I think that, I think that's really interesting, and I and I'm not quite sure why they they're equally important, obviously, um, and one shouldn't be at the detriment of another. But obviously, no. you've got a health budget that is uh, fixed or at least um, finite. Um, there is a significant disproportion spent on women's health and women's preventative health, uh, checks. I've never seen a testicular exam uh, ad on television or in the newspaper? There was a small amount of um, activity around the um, bowel testing over 50s. Yep. Yeah, but... That's which wasn't, I think, gender-specific, was that's, it? It was both men that's, and women. That's yeah. community-based yeah, sure. across the board, mm. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, I, I think that's a glaring um, problem with our public policy, at least on health and, and preventative health for, for men. Um, and I'm sure in Australia we could come up with some really... Ocker, awesome men's terrible commercials that well, you know take the piss that somehow bring bring a, a health item to, to to knowledge. Really, well, casting mine back a long way, the icon in that sense would be Norm from the Life Be in, in It, absolutely oh, campaign, yes. and we haven't seen anything of that kind since then. And that was an overweight, middle aged, you know, Homer Simpson type character, wasn't it? Oh yeah. well, I actually, I I was. Um, I went in for that. Uh, that uh, cast, yeah, I tried to yeah. cast failed the audition. No, no, exactly. <laughs> I think you've raised a phenomenal point about how in Australia, because of the ochre manly culture, 
what I think we have here is the iconic poster boy for certain health issues. And I'm not being flippant here, but uh, Jared Roughhead, who was the current captain of Hawthorne, has become the poster boy for melanoma. And indeed, not just taking care because he's redheaded and fair and the extra precautions, but also the treatment that he received was cutting-edge immunosuppression. And within a year and a half, he was back elected as captain of Hawthorne and now playing in the team next week uh, in the preliminary finals. So there, there are individuals rather than, as you say, why is there not a systemic men's health-directed issue? And... Uh I immediately think, well, it's not as if men don't get enough media time. Yes. So we have the exposure, we have the time, we have the personalities, we've got so many footballers. Mm. I mean, there's no need to kind of Mm. go too far in order to find... It it just needs effort and an approach to be developed, I would think. I think it's really interesting. I I reflect on the advertisements and the the push with the domestic violence Mm. campaign and how that really targeted men to speak to other men uh, about um, behaviours that, that, that they were inflicting on, on you know, partners or um, loved ones. And I, and I think there's something to be said for that mm. style of approach, um, you know, utilisation of, of other guys and our culture to try and, try and define that. Yeah, the culture of mateship, talking to your mates and encouraging that behaviour of, you know, you, you should get that checked out or... And look, and I have to say, there's one thing that I that I omitted, which is really important. And I've talked to my registrars and so my training GPs about this all the time. When we've got a man doing a, a men's health check to bring up mental health and to assess how mm-hmm. they're doing, because men characteristically don't necessarily volunteer that information. And, and some, that's very much a macho thing, isn't it? Absolutely. So we don't talk about our feelings and we're more likely to kill ourselves and, and follow through than women are. Absolutely. And it's just something to, for us to, you know, I think as medical professionals to always have in mind is to make the assessment of mental health. Absolutely. Uh, Lolly Doc raised the idea, uh, raised from the uh, domestic violence campaign, and there's a very powerful uh, clip on TV where there's a bunch of blokes and one of them receives a phone call from his partner and talks her really Mm. down in a humiliating, shaming way, and the others climb on board. Now, that's one approach, that is to have peer pressure, But what about another approach, which would be from the partners of men, wives, children, or indeed if it's same-sex couples, but the partner, and the damage it does to the family unit? Could there be an evoking of some consideration of their self-neglect on their children and that being an inroad which is perhaps not been tried. Panel beta. Yeah, that, that approach has to some extent been used in the anti-smoking campaigns um, where there are, you know, the, the TV ad will open up on a scene where the, the smoker's in a hospital bed with the kids at the bedside. Yes, and yes. Yeah, those sorts of... And, you know, surely that's got some kind of... And did the drink driving campaigns did something similar, wasn't it? It was about the life you'd affect rather than your own life. Yeah. Mm. There's a bunch of... Um, low, uh, sorry, at-risk men in our community as well. And I wanted to pay particular attention to those because they're people who don't have televisions or newspapers, mm. for example. So if you're of low socioeconomic status, um, if you're uh, one of our first people, if you're socially disadvantaged, no job, mental illness, um, if you've got a disability, 
men who are in prison um, or if you're a non-heterosexual man. So if you're gay um, or you're transsexual or intersex, that um, puts you at risk as well. So I think those... Um, particular groups, and they're fairly large, you know, homeless men, they need um, attention as well. Absolutely. All right, it is 10.54 and you're listening to Radiotherapy. We've been talking men's health and we did mention mental health and if you are doing it tough at the moment, I just want to give out the number to Lifeline on 131114 and don't forget your GP should be just around the corner ready to see you and give you a hand if you need. Triple R. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. You're with myself, Miss Medic, Panel Beta, Malice and Lolly Doc. And we've been talking reptilian brains and all things med health this Father's Day. Hope all you dads out there are having a lovely, relaxed morning in this Melbourne sunshine. You must have one more dad joke for us, Lolly Doc. Well, oh, I don't know, but research certainly shows that uh, six out of seven dwarves aren't happy. <laughs> Anyone else got one? What did the um, what did the snail riding on the back of the tortoise say? I don't know. Whee! <laughs> there we go. This guy walks into a library and he says, "Can I get a burger and fries?" And the librarian says, "This is a library." He says, "Sorry, can I get a burger and fries?" <laughs> Oh, my God. Any more? Come on, we've got time for one more. Come on, Lolly Dot. Uh, I before E, except after C, has been disproved by science. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.